ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we begin the new chapter Babun man tabarraka bi shajaratin aw hajarin wa nahwihima The chapter regarding the one who seeks baraka from a tree or a stone or other things like them So let's read the chapter first then who wants to read شجرة أو هجر ونحوهما وقول الله تعالى أفرأيتم اللات والأزة الآيات أن أبي واحد الليتي رضي الله عنه قال خرجنا مع رسول الله صلى الله, صلى الله عليه وسلم إلى هنين ونحوه دفاع أحد بكفر وللمشركين سدرة يعقفون عندها ويموتون بها أسلهتهم يقالوا لها ذات أنوات فمررنا بسدرة فقلنا يا رسول الله جلنا ذات أنوات كما لهم ذات أنوات فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الله أكبر إنها السنن قلتم والذي نفسي بيده كما قالت بنو إسرائيل لموسى جلنا إلها كما لهم آلهة قال إنكم قوم تجهلون لتركبن سنن من كان قبلكم so in this chapter then, which is going to be the chapter regarding Barakah, where and when and how can Barakah be sought? From who, from where, how can Barakah be sought? And when and where and how is it not allowed to seek barakah? Because this is one of those chapters, one of those topics that many f- people fall into error and fall into mistakes regarding where they seek barakah from all types of things, where there is no barakah to be sought, or they seek barakah from somewhere where there is barakah, but they do it incorrectly. So this chapter is going to discuss the topic of barakah and how this barakah can be sought and where and how. So as Shaykh al-Fawzan, he says, هذا الباب مكمل للأبواب التي قبله لأن الأبواب التي قبله في لبس الحلقة والخيط ونحوهما أو تعليق الرقى والتمائم وهذا فيه النهي عن التبرك بالأشجار 
والأحجار فهذه الأبواب كلها مؤداها الاعتقاد بغير الله سبحانه وتعالى أنه يضر أو ينفع وهذا شرك So this chapter it is a continuation of what we have seen in the previous chapters The previous chapters they talked about the impermissibility of wearing certain types of rings and bands and strings believing that they will bring you good and remove harm or any other types of talismans or certain types of ruqya and recitations that they used to do with words of shirk in them those are the types of chapters we have covered so far because all of those were things that people put their trust into or people believe that they are going to bring you good and remove harm this chapter is an extension of that because it is going to talk about things that people believe give you barakah and in reality there is no barakah to be sought from them places and people and items that they go to seeking barakah from them seeking goodness from them that they will bring goodness for them and in reality there is no barakah to be sought from them and those items cannot give them any good and neither can they prevent any harm so this is all from the affairs of shirk so a sheikh al fawzan says لان الذي يقدر على دفع الضر وجلب النفع هو الله سبحانه وتعالى وحده لا شريك له the one who is able to bring you good and to remove from you harm is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone huwa al-qadir subhanahu wa ta'ala ala dhalika la yusharikuhu ahadun wa in kana hunaka ashya' yatarattabu ala isti'maliha aw akliha aw shurbiha darar aw yatarattabu alayhi naf' فهذه أسباب فقط أما الذي يخلق ذلك فهو الله سبحانه وتعالى So Allah alone is the one who can bring you good and remove harm from you and protect you from evil and nobody participates along with Allah in doing that even if there are certain things that you maybe eat or that you use or that you drink and they bring you good then they are only means and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who created those means and he is the one who gives you the end result of those means So a person does not put his trust into the means by themselves in and of themselves rather the trust is in Allah. Mathalan the Sheikh says for example. 
الأكل والشرب من الطيبات هذا فيه نفع لكن ليس الأكل والشرب هو الذي يخلق النفع إنما الذي يخلق النفع هو الله سبحانه وتعالى So for example eating and drinking good and healthy food there is benefit for a person in that there is goodness for a person in that for the nutrition for your body etc but the person does not believe or think that the food and the drink they are going to bring about and they are going to create the healthiness in your body and the nutrition in your body those foods and drinks they are a means for your body to be healthy but allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who ultimately gives you that health so the good and beneficial and healthy and nutritious foods and drinks they are a means for your body to be healthy they themselves are not what are going to create the healthiness in you that is allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who will give you that healthiness those affairs are means to it only another example the sheikh gives as sum yaqtul poison kills poison kills and fire burns لكن ليست هي التي تفعل هذه الأشياء لأنها مخلوقات لله سبحانه وتعالى لكنها أسباب so poison kills and fire burns but those things do not do that in and of themselves rather they are the means for these affairs to occur the poison is a means for a person to perhaps die the fire is a means for something to be burnt so these are all affairs that allah has created the poison is created and the fire is created they do not do anything themselves separate from allah rather they are affairs within which allah has created the results from they are the means from where the results arise from so the poison is a means to death fire is a means to burn the affairs so these are all examples again that they are means and a person does not put his comprehension and understanding and his heart into the means of an affair they are created allah created those means and if it should be the case it may be that a person takes the means to something yet the result does not occur a person may take the means to something but the result does not occur for him so 
These are all means created by Allah. A person does not put his trust and dependence and reliance into the means. Rather, he remembers they are creations of Allah and therefore puts his trust in Allah upon taking those means. يقدر القادر سبحانه أن يسلبها هذه الخاصيات كما سلب النار الحرارة لما ألقي فيها إبراهيم So if Allah wants, He can make those things, the poison, the fire, lose their effects. If Allah wishes, they may lose their effects. Like in the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he was thrown into the fire after he destroyed their idols and the mushrikun built the fire and they threw him into the fire, fire burns. It destroys and eats up whatever is thrown into it. That is what it does. It is the means to that. However, in that instance, Allah removed the effect and the impact and the result of that means did not occur. The result of a fire is that it should burn and eat and destroy what touches it. Yet on that occasion, Allah removed the effect of the means. The fire was there, but it was not hot and it did not burn and eat up Ibrahim alayhi salam. So these are all affairs that have been created by Allah and they are means to things. But ultimately they are creations of Allah and those results, they occur by the will of Allah. And it may be that sometimes a means occurs, but the result does not. And then the Shaykh, he mentions, وَقَوْلُهُ so the statement of the author in the title of the chapter, Man Tabarraka, a Talab al-Baraka, the one who does this Tabarraka, Yatabarraku Tabarrukan, meaning the one who seeks Baraka. And what is Baraka? Husulul Khair. It is to achieve, to acquire, to obtain goodness. When you're seeking baraka, you are seeking goodness. And then on top of that, you are seeking for it to expand and multiply. You want goodness and you want that goodness to expand and multiply. And you want that goodness to remain. Not that it comes and goes. You want the goodness and you want it to increase and you want it to remain and to be plentiful. That is the objective behind Baraka. You're seeking for some goodness and you're wanting it to increase in that goodness, and you're wanting it to remain and not disappear from you and be plentiful for you. That's seeking barakah, seeking goodness for yourself. 
So in the chapter title it says that the one who seeks barakah, seeks goodness and hopes for that goodness and multiplication of goodness, hopes for those things from a tree or a stone or other affairs similar to them. أي طلب البركة وهي حصول الخير ونماؤه وثبوته وكثرته من حجر أو من شجر أو اعتقد أنها سبب للبركة وهي لم يجعلها الله أسبابا لها فقد أشرك بالله سبحانه So the one who attempts to seek baraka from something that Allah has not made a means for that baraka. It is not an affair that has been made a means to acquire goodness from. Then the one who seeks it from that has committed shirk. Like the one who attempts to seek baraka from a particular tree, believing it's a sacred tree, planted above or at the head of the grave of one of the awliya. So this tree has barakah in it, seeking barakah from the tree, shirk. Or a particular rock or stone, believing this is some sacred rock or some sacred stone here, and that you can seek barakah from it, touching it and wiping it, then that would be shirk. But then the question might arise, which is the question of the black stone. The black stone in the Kaaba. Isn't that Mubarak? Isn't there Barakah in the black stone? You could say yes. You could say yes, there is Barakah in the black stone. But when we have been commanded to kiss the black stone and to put your forehead onto it. If you get the opportunity in tawaf, when it comes to the black stone, to touch it, physically touch it and put your head on it and kiss it. Isn't that seeking barakah from the stone? It is certainly sunnah to do that. Certainly sunnah. To kiss the black stone, to touch the black stone, to put your head onto it, touch it. Sunnah, all of that established. Isn't that seeking baraka from the black stone? And here we are saying it is shirk. The one who goes attempting to seek baraka from the stones or the trees. What do we say about that? Huh? Intention. So what's your intention? When you touch it and kiss it, are you not seeking barakah from the black stone? Is that your intention or not? No. No? So then why do you kiss the black stone if you're in tawaf? Uh-huh. So there is the narration of Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, which clarifies this. The narration of Umar, Ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, when he was doing tawaf, 
And then he got to the black stone and he kissed it. And in some of the versions of the narration, it says that some of the mushrikun were there. And they saw him do it. And it would have looked like that he's doing what they were doing. Going to their stones and seeking barakah from their stones. So when Umar ibn al-Khattab did that, because it is a sunnah to do so, he said, إِنِّي لَأَعْلَمُ أَنَّكَ حَجَرٌ لَا تَضُرْ وَلَا تَنْفَعْ وَلَوْ لَا أَنِّي رَأَيْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يُقَبِّلُكَ مَا قَبَّلْتُكَ He said, I know that you are only a stone. You cannot harm nor bring me good. I know that you are only a stone. You cannot harm or bring good. And was it not for the fact that I saw the Prophet ﷺ kissing you, then I would not have kissed you. Meaning the only reason he was doing it was because it is an implementation of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. That it is an act of <coughs> worship to Allah. Not that you are doing this to seek direct barakah. And so you touch the stone and then wipe yourself. Not like that. This is an act of worship. That you kiss the black stone and you touch the black stone. An act of worship. Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. It is ibadah mahwa, as they say. You do that purely because it is prescribed as an act of worship. Not because you believe the stone has barakah of bringing you goodness and removing harm from you. Umar ibn al-Khattab said, I know you are just a stone. You cannot bring harm or good. And it's only because I saw the messenger kissing you, I am kissing you. Meaning I am implementing the sunnah and doing this act of worship to Allah. So, the example of the black stone is not something anyone should be confused with. And it is not something that comes into the chapter of what the mushrikun used to do. They used to go to their stones believing that there is harm and good and those affairs, believing that they are going to extract barakah out of their stones and their trees. That's the shirk. As for a pure act of worship, implementing the sunnah, knowing and believing the stone is not going to give you barakah of goodness or harm, then that is not an act of shirk here. So here then, talking about the mushrikun, going to their stones and to their trees, لا يخلق البركة ولا يوجدها Their stones and their trees, they do not bring about any goodness. They do not remove any harm. وهو, نعم, ولا هو مسبب في حصولها إلا ما جعله سببا في حصولها في بعض الأشياء مباركة مثل ما زمزم so there are certain things that do have barakah in them. There are certain things that do have barakah in them. 
and barakah is achieved from them. Ma zamzam, the water of zamzam is given as an example. It is ma'un mubarak. It is a water that is full of barakah in it. The prophets, how are the prophets mubarak? How are they with barakah in them? Because they have come with the revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They convey that revelation from Allah. And by you learning and taking that revelation and implementing it, is that not goodness for you? And an increase in goodness for you? And to remain steadfast upon that, that is a form of barakah from the prophets and the messengers. The Kaaba. And this now, these kinds of examples have to be understood carefully as well. The Kaaba, it is Mubarak. Makkah has Baraka in it. Arafah has Baraka in it. Muzdalifa, Baraka in it. These places and locations have Baraka in them. But does that mean that you seek this Baraka? through wiping and touching and doing those affairs. Baraka is not sought from the Kaaba by touching or by stealing the black cloth from it. Baraka is sought from the Kaaba by performing the worship that Allah has legislated for you at that location. And there are specific acts of worship legislated at the Kaaba. So when a person does the tawaf around the Kaaba, and then you greet the Yemeni corner, and then you touch and kiss the black stone, and you can uh, touch and put your body up against the black stone and the door, that small area. But the other sides of the Kaaba, there is no baraka to be sought by wiping other sides of the Kaaba and by wiping yourself and your clothes on the other sides of the Kaaba or on the other corners of the Kaaba or by taking the actual cloth from the Kaaba. Baraka is not sought in that way. And the same with Arafah and Muzdalifa and those locations. They are places that are Mubarak. Places that have barakah in them. But the barakah is for their locations. The location of Arafah has barakah in it. The hajjis, the hujjaj, they go and they stay in Arafah on the ninth day of the hijjah. They make the dua there. It mentions in the hadith, Allah descends. It's a place of barakah. The place is a place of barakah. That does not mean though that you can remove and take baraka from that place to another place as people do when they go with a jar and they fill up the sand from Arafah and then they bring it home and put it onto the mantelpiece saying we now have baraka in the house because that jar of sand it was collected from Arafah. Barakah does not travel in this way. Barakah does not transfer from a location to your home in this way. Arafah 
Hasbaraka. You cannot remove Arafah and bring it to your house. So sometimes a place, something may have Baraka in it. But the way that the people deal with that and interact with that is impermissible. The Quran, the Quran has it Baraka in it or not? Absolutely. The Quran has Baraka in it. But as we've mentioned, people may misuse the Quran, even when it came to the topic of the talismans, even if they are wearing purely the Quran, many of the people, their aqidah is misguided and their trust goes into this item and the writing rather than in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the barakah of the Quran is through understanding it and reading it and the reward of uh, ten of every letter that you recite and understanding and practicing it, that's where the barakah comes. But the people, they misunderstand how to achieve the barakah. They may think, khalas, buy the 99 pound frame with ayatul kursi on the wall. Barakah has been achieved by the Quran. Rather, barakah is achieved through reading and understanding and practicing. So sometimes there may be something with barakah in it, but the people misunderstand how and what that means. So the Kaaba, you could say, has barakah in it. But that does not mean that you go wiping everywhere on it, on all sides of it, on all corners of it, chopping the cloth of it and stealing it. That is not barakah. So in the Quran, Allah mentions, إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةَ مُبَارَكًا وَهُدًا لِلْعَالَمِينَ that the first house that was placed for the people was the one in Bakkah, Mecca, and it is Mubarak. So the Kaaba is Mubarak, but it does not mean that you go and do things which are outside of the Sunnah in attempting to receive and achieve and bring back and transfer the Barakah to your houses by stealing the black cloth from it. فَاللَّهُ هُوَ الَّذِي جَعَلَ الْكَعْبَ مُبَارَكَةً so even if the Kaaba is Mubaraka, how has it become filled with Baraka? Has the Kaaba itself delivered that Baraka for itself? Or is it a creation and that Allah has created that Baraka in it? Of course, Allah has created that Baraka within it. So no item creates its own barakah for a person. Rather, Allah puts that barakah into that affair. لَكِنِ اللَّهُ جَعَلَهَا مُبَارَكَةً فَالْبَرَكَةُ مِنَ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَبَرَكَتُهَا بِالْحَجِّ وَالْعُمْرَةِ وَاسْتِقْبَالُهَا فِي الصَّلَاةِ وَالطَّوَافِ بِهَا وَالتَّعَبُّدِ عِنْدَهَا فِي الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ so seeking baraka from the Kaaba is by performing Umrah and by performing Hajj and by facing it in the prayer. That's why when you're in the Haram, Al-Masjid Al-Haram, when you're in the mosque and you can see the Kaaba, the fiqh of the prayer is you must face where? Where must you face? to the Kaaba directly. If you're in the mosque, and the Kaaba, you can see it in the center of the mosque, 
and you're on the outer rings of the mosque, you can't pray just generally that way. But really where your body is going, you keep going forward, you're missing the Kaaba. You can't do that. The scholars, they say, if you're there and you can see the Kaaba, your body must be going to the Kaaba. Whereas here, when you're distanced from the Kaaba, it is in the direction of the Kaaba. So Barakah is facing the Kaaba. When you're there, then you must face it directly. Some scholars even have the opinion, this is an opinion of some scholars, when you're there right in front of the Kaaba, and you're praying, you're, normally where do you put your eyes when you pray? They are supposed to be down at the place of prostration. Your eyes looking down at the place of prostration, and that's where they are supposed to stay. But some scholars have the opinion, if you're at the Kaaba praying, your eyes are actually supposed to be on the Kaaba. It is an opinion of some of the scholars. If you're right there in front of the Kaaba, you're actually looking at the Kaaba as you pray. At the Kaaba. So this is one of the forms of the Barakah there. أَمَّا بِالْحَجِّ وَالْعُمْرَةِ وَاسْتِقْبَالِهَا فِي الصَّلَاةِ وَالطَّوَافِ بِهَا وَالتَّعَبُّدِ عِنْدَهَا And doing tawaf around the Kaaba. And tawaf isn't only limited to when you're doing Umrah or Hajj. Tawaf can be done multiple times outside of Umrah and Hajj also. وَقَدْ يَجْعَلُ اللَّهُ بَعْضَ الْأَشْيَاءِ مُبَارَكَةً كَمَا أَنَّ اللَّهَ يَجْعَلُ بَعْضَ الْأَشْيَاءِ شِرِّيرَةً وَفَقَدْ جَعَلَ الشَّيَاطِينَ شِرِّيرَةً وَجَعَلَ بَعْضَ الدَّوَابِ شِرِّيرَةً فَالْإِعْتِمَادُ عَلَى اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى فِي كُلِّ الْأُمُورِ وَإِنَّمَا نَتَّخِذُ الْأَسْبَابَ لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ أَمَرَنَا بِاتِّخَادِ الْأَسْبَابِ So Allah makes certain affairs and they have goodness in them. And Allah may make other affairs and from our perspective there is evil in them. But all of those matters, they are simply the means Allah has created to either goodness or to evil. And Allah is the one who creates all of that for us. We simply take the means. We take the means that have been given to us. Because Allah commanded us to take the means. As for the results, then they are from Allah. What results from those means, the consequences of those means, then they are from Allah. A person may take the means to something, but it doesn't occur for him. The result and the consequence and the impact and the effect of the means then that is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a person does not put his trust into the means. Rather you put your trust in Allah. وَنَحْنُ لَا نُعَطِّلُ الْأَسْبَابِ And therefore the shaykh says, we do not reject and make the means null and void. Because a person may say, if 
It's all about putting your trust in Allah. And the means are just the means. Ultimately, it's about putting your trust in Allah. Then a person may say, in that case, forget the means. I'll just go directly to the issue of putting my trust in Allah. If it's ultimately about putting your trust in Allah, which it is, and ultimately whatever happens, whatever result, whatever effect will be by the will of Allah, a person may say, well, forget the means then. I'm going to put my 100% trust in Allah, and I won't bother with the means then. Ultimately, it's Allah who will give me whatever happens. But that's incorrect. That is incorrect. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan says here, uh, we don't say that the means are therefore null and void and that they have nothing to do with anything and there is no impact in them. We do not say that. Rather, Allah commanded us to take the means, but we do not put the trust into the means. We put our trust into Allah. And that's like the example we gave last time. A person says that I have put my trust into Allah absolutely and completely that Allah will bestow upon me righteous children. And I make dua every day that Allah will bestow upon me righteous children. I have my absolute trust in Allah. Allah will bestow upon me righteous children. So then you say to the person, excellent. You have put your trust in Allah. Have you taken the means and got married then? And he says, no. Then you say to him, this claim of yours, that you have put your trust in Allah, He will bestow you with righteous children, you are not being truthful in your claim. And this is not the reality of trust. Allah's commanded you to take the means and then put your trust in Allah. You want righteous children? Then you're going to have to take the means of getting Married, get married, take the means, and then have your absolute trust in Allah that you are blessed with righteous children. As for the one who says, I have my trust in Allah, my trust in Allah, he will give me righteous children. And yet you're not going anywhere to get married, you're sitting at home, where will the children pop out and appear from? Knock on your door like that from where? So the scholars, they make a joke out of this example. They say, this person, where does he think the righteous children are going to come from? He's not going to go take the means, not get married. Then what's this claim of his that I have my trust in Allah? Allah will give me righteous children. Yes, but take the means and then put your trust in Allah. If a person doesn't understand that and he puts his trust into the means, then that is shirk. In fact, this is a phrase that the scholars they use. Putting your dependence into the means, that's shirk. But abandoning the means, that is a criticism of the legislation. It is a, it is a form of deficiency that you are attributing to the legislation if you don't take the means like the example of the one who says i make dua for righteous children allah will give me righteous children but he's not even going and getting married so the scholars they say if you put your trust into the means that's shirk but if you abandon the means 
then again you are now indicating some level of deficiency and shortcoming in the legislation. Why is that? لِأَنَّ الشَّرَعْ أَمَرَكَ بِاتِّخَاذِ الْأَسْبَابِ Because the Sharia has commanded you to take the means. وَلِاعْتِمَادُ عَلَى الْأَسْبَابِ شِرْكْ لِأَنَّهُ اعْتِمَادُ عَلَى غَيْرِ اللَّهِ So the Shaykh says, فَهَذِهِ مَسْأَلَةَ يَجِبُ عَلَى طَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ أَنْ يَفْقَهَهَا وَأَنْ يَعْرِفَهَا This issue... Sheikh Al-Fawzan says it is binding upon a student of knowledge to understand it and to know it. And to focus and think about it carefully, the issue of the means and trust in Allah, etc. And that he clarifies and makes it clear to the Muslims لِإِزَاحَةِ الشُّبُهَاتِ In order to then remove the doubts. وَإِزَاحَةِ التَّضْلِيلِ الَّذِي يَرُوجُ عِنْدَ بَعْضِ النَّاسِ بِسَبَبِ الْجَهْلِ أَوْ بِسَبَبِ سُوءِ الْقَصْدِ And to therefore remove the misguidance that is widespread among some people due to their ignorance or due to their evil intentions and goals and objectives. So that is... The affair regarding the means to something and the trust in Allah. So now the chapter is talking about seeking barakah. And the first evidence that is given here is the ayah in the Quran where Allah says, And the ayat continue. In these ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the names of some of the, the big idols, of the, the major idols that existed amongst the Quraysh. Some of the biggest of the idols, not physically, but in terms of stature and rank. These were from the biggest of their idols that they had. So Allah says, أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةَ وَمَنَاتَ الثَّالِثَةَ الْأُخْرَى That have you seen them? Allat, Al-Uzza, and the other one, Manat. These three were mentioned in this particular ayah. They were from the biggest of the idols that they had. And these ayat... They are a rebuke and a refutation of the mushrikun who put their trust and their dependence and their seeking of barakah from those idols. يقول الله تعالى للمشركين الذين يعبدون الأصنام وفي مقدمتها الأصنام الثلاثة المشهورة عند العرب. So Allah says to the mushrikun who used to worship or who worship the idols, and at the head of them were these three famous idols amongst the Arabs at the time, Allat, Al-Uzza, and Manat. Allah is rebuking them. Do these idols give you any benefit or harm? فَيَقُولْ أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ يَعْنِي هَلْ نَفَعَتْكُمْ أَوْ دَفَعَتْ عَنْكُمُ الضَّرَرِ هَلْ جَلَبَتْ لَكُمْ شَيْئًا مِنَ الرِّزْقِ 
Allah is saying in these ayat, these idols of yours, Allah, Tal-Uzza, have they ever given you any benefit? Have they ever removed any harm from you? Have they ever acquired, got you any rizq? فَلَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ الْجَوَابَ بِأَنَّهَا تَذُرْ أَوْ تَنْفَعْ لَمْ تَنْفَعْهُمْ فِي بَدْرْ وَغَيْرِهَا مِنَ الْغَزَوَاتِ So they can never try and tell you that their idols have benefited them or removed harm from them in the battle of Badr and other battles that the mushrikun were defeated in by the Muslims. Their idols, where were they? Where was the benefit their idols should have given them and the harm their idols should have removed from them? They were not able to do anything. They cannot defend themselves let alone defend those who call upon them. So these kinds of ayat in the Qur'an, we've mentioned this before, when they come in the form of a question, like this one, أَفَرَأَيْتُمْ Have you seen Allah تَلْعُزَّى manat? The question isn't a question, it is actually a rebuke. One of the meanings of the questions in the Qur'an is a rebuke upon someone. So this is a rebuke upon them. Have you seen your idols? Have they given you any benefit? Have they removed any harm from you? So this is a rebuke of the mushrikun. So what were these idols then? The first one, Allat. Allat, in the tafsir, in the books of tafsir, there are two meanings or two explanations the scholars give for this idol Allah. One of them is when you pronounce the ta without a shadda. Allah. The other one is with a shadda. Allah. One without a shadda, one with a shadda. When you pronounce it without a shadda, Allah, just a ta by itself at the end, no shadda on it, then it is ismu hajarin kabirin amlas alayhi nuqush. Kanu yatabarrakuna bihi wa yatlubuna minhu qada hajatihim wa tafrij kurubatihim. Allah. It was a smooth, white, large stone, a large, smooth, white stone with engravings and carvings in it. This is the tafsir some of the scholars have given, that Allah, it was a smooth, large stone with engravings and carvings in it. And this particular stone, they used to seek barakah from it, believing that it had some ability to give them what they were asking for and to remove from them the difficulties and harms. The second opinion or the second tafsir is to pronounce the ta with a shadda, with a shadda on the ta at the end. And that is from the verb لَتَّيَلُتُّ And this tafsir 
It says that Allah was a man. He was a man who used to help the hujjaj. And he used to offer them food. And offer them some provisions. He used to help the hujjaj. He used to help them to uh, pound the flour and prepare food for them. He used to do all of that for the hujjaj crush and pound the flour in order to prepare that for them and they can use it for food and eating whilst they were in hajj. So he was a righteous man who used to help the hujjaj. And when he died, the people took his grave as a place of worship. They built a shrine upon his grave and they began seeking barakah from him. So this was very similar to the original incident of shirk. What was the original shirk that occurred at the time of Nuh alayhi salam when eventually after generations they began worshipping those who were once righteous people. They were righteous people once and then as time went by and knowledge was lost the generations that came afterwards were whispered to and led to believe that these people are to be worshipped. So it was the ghulu, fissaliheen, and there's a chapter specifically on that later, the exaggeration in righteous people. How exaggeration in righteous people leads to opening up the door to shirk. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said even about himself, لا تطروني كما أطرت النصارى عيسى بن مريم Do not raise me as the Christians they raised up Isa, the son of Maryam. So exaggeration in your praise and your love for the righteous, exaggeration and excessiveness in it can lead to shirk occurring. And that's what happened here. Their excessiveness and their exaggeration in this righteous man who used to help the hujjaj and feed them, led them to then build a shrine upon his grave, and he became a tomb and a shrine to be worshipped, or barakah to be sought from it. So that is the second tafsir of Allah. So the shaykh says, فَالْغُلُوا فِي الصَّالِحِينَ Exaggeration and excessiveness in raising and praising and loving the righteous, excessiveness and exaggeration in that is an affair that is old. And it is a practice of jahiliyyah from the olden times, from the time of Nuh alayhi salam. That's why from the principles of Salafiyyah, as a Sheikh Abdullah al-Bukhari mentioned in one of his books, one of the principles of Salafiyyah is نُنَزِّلُ النَّاسَ مَنْزِلَتَهُمْ أُمَنَازِلَهُمْ That we put everybody at their level. You do not exaggerate and become excessive in an affair like the Sufis do with their Imams. The imam doesn't even have to pray anymore. He's reached such a level. 
The Imam, he can do sins if he wants now. The angels aren't writing his deeds anymore. Their exaggeration and excessiveness in raising the people even higher than the levels of Abu Bakr and Umar, radiallahu anhuma. So from the principles of Salafiyyah, is that you do not exaggerate and become excessive in raising a person above his level. So here the Shaykh says that is something old which has occurred amongst the people and it is one of the doors that opens up into shirk. Other scholars have given examples of these types of things. Uh, when Allah died or, or, or uh, when this shrine was built or other shrines of this nature, people used to believe that if a woman cannot get pregnant, she should go to that shrine. Go to that shrine and do i'tikaf at the shrine and then you'll be pregnant afterwards. Or if a person was sick, that he should go to that shrine and stay there and you will get cure via that shrine. So this was the level of barakah they thought. They were seeking from the dead and their tombs and their shrines. A sick person go to that tomb. The barakah will come to you, you'll be cured. A woman cannot get pregnant, go to that tomb. And then afterwards the barakah will come into you, you'll become pregnant. Exaggeration and ghulu to this level. And that is certainly shirk. فَعَلَى التَّفْسِيرِ الْأَوَّلِ So upon the first explanation of what Allah was, which was the smooth, large stone with the carvings in it, that means upon that tafsir, they were seeking barakah from stones. Direct and clear, they were seeking barakah from a stone. This stone with the engravings and carvings on it, believing there is goodness to be had from it, and harm to be removed from you via it. And upon the second tafsir, which was of the righteous man who died, and they built a tomb and shrine upon him, then in that case they were seeking barakah from the graves. They were seeking barakah from the graves. So upon both explanations it is shirk, kila tafsiraini haq, and both of the explanations are truth. And this particular idol of theirs or this particular tomb or stone, Allah, it continued to be worshipped, continued for barakah to be sought from it, all the way up until the conquering of Mecca, which was in the year 8 Hijri. In the 8th year of Hijri, the Muslims returned from Medina and they conquered Mecca. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Al-Fatih, that's the conquering of Mecca. When the conquering of Mecca occurred in the 8th year of Hijri, that's when this idol Allah was finally destroyed. Up until that time, it was being worshipped by the people. The second one here is Al-Uzza. Al-Uzza. 
Al-Uzza, and by the way, Allat, before we move on to Al-Uzza, Allat, it is mentioned that they distorted the name of Allah. Allah into Allat. So this is an example of their Ilhad in the names of Allah. Their distortion and deviation and kufr when it came to the names of Allah that they distorted Allah into Allat. That is mentioned by the scholars also. The second one, Al-Uzza, and they say this was a deviation and a distortion from the name of Al-Aziz, that they distorted it and changed it into Al-Uzza. And this was an idol that the people of Mecca used to have. And there are descriptions of this idol given in different books, but basically they all mention that there were three pillars or three trees. Three trees, and they would hang basically like curtains around them, around those three trees that are in a triangular kind of formation, and they would hang curtains around all of those trees, all around it, to make a central point within that triangle of trees, curtains as a wall around it, and on top of it, and on the branches, and the sides, and then within that, it is mentioned that there was a jinni woman, and this whole thing was their uzza, these trees with the curtains around it, and it's mentioned in some of the narrations, they had lanterns, lanterns hanging around, and the curtains around those trees, and that there was a jinni woman within there. Uh, فَهِيَ عِبَارَ عَنْ شَجَرَاتِ ثَلَاثٍ مِنَ السَّمْرِ وَعِنْدَهَا بَنِيَّةٍ عَلَيْهَا أَسْتَارٍ كَانَتْ لِقُرَيْشِ وَلِأَهْلِ مَكَّةٍ يَعْبُدُونَهَا مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ وَلِهَذَا قَالَ أَبُو سُفْيَانَ فِي يَوْمِ أَحَدٍ بَعْدَ أَنْ انْتَهَتِ الْمَعْرَكَةُ لَنَا الْعُزَّةُ وَلَا عُزَّةُ لَكُمْ فَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ أَجِيبُوهُ قولوا الله مولانا ولا مولا لكم. It's mentioned that Abu Sufyan from the disbelievers on the battle of Uhud, after it finished, he said to the Muslims, as though it was with pride, he said to the Muslims, لنا العزة, we have عزة, their idol عزة, ولا عزة لكم, and you don't have any عزة. So the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, reply to him, reply to him and tell him, Allahu Mawlana wala Mawla lakum. Allah is our Mawla, our protector, and you have no Mawla, you have no protector, you have no, uh, 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 no one in your aid and support and protection, and we have Allah. For when they said, Al-Uzza lana, وَلَا عُزَّى لَكُمْ The Muslim said, Allahu Mawlana وَلَا مَوْلَى لَكُمْ Allah is our Mawla and you do not have any Mawla. So that is a comprehensive refutation that the Muslims placed upon them. وَفِيمَا بَعْدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَىٰ أَبِي سُفْيَانِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ And then after that, at a later point, Abu Sufyan actually became Muslim. وَالْإِسْلَامُ يَجُبُّ مَا قَبْلَهُ 
and Islam, it wipes out that which comes before it. So the point is, this idol Uzza, it existed amongst the people of Mecca. And when the conquering of Mecca occurred, the Prophet ﷺ sent Khalid ibn al-Walid to go and destroy al-Uzza. So when Khalid ibn al-Walid went to al-Uzza, he chopped down those trees. Chopped down those trees. So the trees and the curtains and all of that chopped it down and got rid of it. And so when he came back to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet said to him, لَمْ تَفْعَلْ شَيْئًا You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. Even though Khalid ibn al-Walid had gone and chopped down the trees, the Prophet said to him, you haven't done anything, you didn't do it. So then Khalid ibn al-Walid went back. For the second time now he goes back. And that's when he finds that within those trees there was this jinni woman, as many of the scholars mentioned, this naked woman with her hair all over her, the hair all over her face and everywhere. And that she was within that. And so when he killed her, then he returned. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Tilka al-Uzza. That was al-Uzza. Because the mushrikun used to call upon this shrine and the voice used to come to them from inside of the jinni woman. So then Khalid ibn al-Walid, when he killed her, then that was al-Uzza, the Prophet ﷺ said. وَالْوَاقِعْ أَنَّ الْمُشْرِكِينَ لَيْسَتْ عِبَادَتُهُمْ لِهَذِي الْأَصْنَامِ وَإِنَّمَا عِبَادَتُهُمْ لِلشَّيَاطِينَ فَالشَّيَاطِينَ هِيَ الَّتِي تُغْرِيهِمْ وَتَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى عِبَادَتِهَا وَهِيَ الَّتِي تُكَلِّمُهُمْ أَحْيَانًا وَيَظُنُّونَ أَنَّ الصَّنَمَ هُوَ الَّذِي يَتَكَلَّمْ أو أَنَّ الْمَيِّتْ هُوَ الَّذِي يَتَكَلَّمْ So in reality the Shaykh says it is not the idols that the mushrikun worship but it is the shayateen. And when they would call upon the idols, the shayateen would reply back to them and speak to them. And so they call upon them. The third one, manat, ومنات الثالثة الأخرى The third one, Manat And that was an idol that was close by to Medina And it was owned by or it was under the uh, uh, responsibility and connected to one of the tribes of the Arabs And when they used to go to Hajj and Umrah They used to do their ihram from that idol which was close by to Medina. When they headed out, they would do their ihram from there. And this idol also, after the conquering of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ had it destroyed, and it was done by Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, destroyed the idol Manat. So then the Shaykh says, فَأَيْنَ ذَهَبَتْ هَذِهِ الْأَصْنَامِ لَوْ كَانَتْ آلِهَا لَدَفَعَتْ عَنْ نَفْسِهَا So where did those idols go in the end? If they were gods, then certainly they would have defended themselves from being destroyed. وَالشَّاهِدُ مِنَ الْآيَةِ الْكَرِيمَةِ بُطْلَانُ التَّبَرُّكِ بِالْأَشْجَارِ وَالْأَحْجَارِ لِأَنَّ هَذِهِ أَشْجَارُ وَأَحْجَارُ لَمْ تَدْفَعْ عَنْ نَفْسِهَا فَضْلًا عَنْ أَنْ تَدْفَعْ 
عن غيرها. So this highlights that seeking baraka from trees or stones or graves, then all of that is falsehood and it is shirk. They cannot defend themselves, let alone defend anyone else or bring goodness or remove harm from anyone else. وَفِيهِ أَنَّ مَنْ تَبَرَّكَ بِقَبَرٍ أَوْ بِحَجَرٍ أَوْ شَجَرٍ يَعْتَقِدُ فِيهِ أَنَّهُ يَنْفَعُ وَيَضُرُّ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ أَوْ أَنَّهُ سَبَبٌ لِحُصُولِ الْبَرَكَةِ أَوْ تَقَرَّبَ إِلَيْهِ بِشَيْءٍ مِنَ الْعِبَادَةِ فَهُوَ مِثْلُ مَنْ عَبَدَ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّةِ سَوَاءٌ لا فرق بل من غلا في قبر من القبور فهو كمن عبد اللات لأن اللات على التفسير الثاني هو رجل صالح غلو في قبره بعد موته So the sheikh says Now whomsoever seeks baraka from a grave a grave of a dead person seeking baraka from that or from a stone, or from a tree, believing that it will bring it good, or remove harm from it, besides Allah, or that it is a means even, that it's a means that Allah will via it, bring him good and remove harm, all of that belief, him seeking closeness to that grave, or that stone, or that tree, that type of worship and that type of seeking of barakah, then he is doing exactly what the mushrikun used to do in regards to Allah and al-Uzza and Manat, how they sought barakah from those idols and they sought uh, goodness from them and the removal of harm from them. So this is the ayah, the first ayah in this chapter. أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّى وَمَنَاتَ الثَّالِثَةَ الْأُخْرَى Have you seen these idols, Allah, Al-Uzza, and the other one, Manat? Meaning, have they brought you any good? And have they removed from you any harm? And of course, the answer is no. So a person should think about these things very carefully. Because it is widespread amongst the Muslims too. In many parts of the world, the attachment to graves the attachment to this shrine and that shrine and this tomb and that tomb, these are all from the affairs of shirk. It is impermissible to seek baraka in this way, to seek closeness to Allah via them, thinking your dua will be answered via them. So these evidences, they are highlighting that more and more as we go along. The second evidence in this chapter We'll do next time then is the hadith of Abu Waqid al-Layfi about a particular tree that the kuffar used to put their weapons on. They would hang their weapons on it, believing that baraka would be achieved via that. And they would do i'tikaf at that tree, believing that there was baraka to be taken from it. So there's a hadith about that. We'll cover that next time, insha'Allah ta'ala. We'll conclude upon that for today. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Is there anything to ask or add? You can do so now.
There was a question last week and we left it to this week. Uh, it says it is from a child. How do I know Salafiyya, the Salafis, are from the rightly guided sect? So we know there are different sects. The Prophet wasallam said, Inna hadhihi al-ummah satafteriqu ila thalathin wa sab'ina firqah. كلها في النار إلا واحدة قالوا من هي يا رسول الله قال ما أنا عليه اليوم وأصحابي The Prophet said that this ummah will split up into 73 sects all of them in the fire except one so the companions they said to the Prophet who are they and the Prophet ﷺ told them, مَا أَنَا عَلَيْهِ الْيَوْمَ وَأَصْحَابِي In one version, that which I am upon today and my companions. So a person who is upon what the Messenger was upon that day, meaning during his lifetime when the revelation came, what he was upon and what he taught, and what the companions were upon, the Salaf, the one who is upon that methodology, then they are the ones who are الطائفةُ المنصورة الفرقةُ الناجية the saved sect and the aided sect. And as the hadith says, لا تزال طائفةٌ من أمتي they will always remain a group from my ummah. They will always be على الحق upon the truth. And they will maintain that till the day of judgment. Those are the ones who follow what the messenger was upon and what the companions were upon. They are the Salaf. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, خَيْرُ النَّاسِ الْقَرْنُ الَّذِي بُعِثْتُ فِيهِمْ ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ يَلُونَهُمْ ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ يَلُونَهُمْ The best of the people of the generation I have been sent in. The companions... Then those who come after them, the tabi'een. Then those who come after them, atba'a tabi'een. Those are the early generations, the salaf. And that's why al-imam Ahmad in usul al-sunnah at the beginning, he says that our principles are to be upon what the companions were upon. And he did not mention our principles are to be upon the Quran and the Sunnah and then what the companions are upon. Why? Really because it answers this question perfectly for us. Every group out there will claim that they are upon Quran and Sunnah. Every group out there with the rare exceptions of the Quraniyun and their likes, everybody out there will claim they are upon Quran and Sunnah. You go to the Khawarij and they'll say Quran, Sunnah. The Tabligh is Quran, Sunnah. Anybody. Quran, Sunnah, they will claim. Even if they have Ya Rasulullah and Ya this and Ya that, Quran, Sunnah, they will say. So how do we differentiate and know who the rightly guided sect are? If all of the sects are saying that we are upon the Quran and the Sunnah, Al-Imam Ahmed was extremely astute and precise in what he said there. That our principles are to follow what the Sahaba were upon. Because the distinction is the Salaf. 
Everybody claims to follow the Quran and the Sunnah. But who follows it upon the way of the Prophet and the companions, of the way of the Salaf? The ones who do, they are the saved sect. Because the Messenger said, the saved sect are what I am upon and my companions are upon. عَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّةِ وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَافَاءِ الرَّاشِدِينَ الْمَهْدِيِّينَ مِنْ بَعْدِي Upon you is to cling to my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided caliphs after me. تَرَكْتُ فِيكُمْ شَيْئَيْنِ مَا إِنْ تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِمَا لَنْ تَذِلُّوا بَعْدِي كِتَابَ اللَّهِ وَسُنَّتِي I left two things behind. I have left two things behind. As long as you cling on to them, you will not go astray the book of Allah and my sunnah. So when Imam Ahmed said, our methodology basically is that we are upon what the companions were upon. And what were they upon? They were upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So if we implement the Qur'an and the Sunnah the way the companions did, then that is the rightly guided pathway. As for all of the other sects out there claiming that they are following the Qur'an and the Sunnah as soon as you bring in the issue of the Salaf, then their arguments fall down. They will say, the Khawarij will say, everything they do is proven by the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Say, okay, where from the Salaf? Who from the Salaf implemented the religion as you do? Rather, in the Salaf, you see them going and refuting the Khawarij, the Tablis, the Sufis, Everything they claim, Qur'an and Sunnah. You say, okay, from the Salaf, the Sahaba, the companions that the Prophet told us about, the best of the generations, his students, are you practicing Islam as they did? What you are claiming, can it be proven that Abu Bakr used to do that? Or he used to believe that? And Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum, any sect claiming Qur'an and Sunnah, as soon as you bring this principle to them, okay, you're saying this evidence of yours, it proves you can do this and that. Did the Salaf do that then? If they didn't, then what does it mean? Either the Salaf didn't understand the religion, but you do. So you're doing all of these things, but the Salaf didn't because they didn't understand the religion. That can't be the case. Then what can possibly be the case? How can it be that your understanding of the Quran and the Sunnah is accurate when you cannot find anyone from the Salaf upon this understanding of yours. It's like the birthday of the Prophet Oh, we have evidence, we have this, we have that. Can you show me any of the Salaf who did it then? No, they cannot. Their beliefs in the names and attributes. Can you find us any of the Salaf who rejected the names and attributes? Their belief in Iman, in the decree. Can you find us anyone from the Salaf? The ones who learned from the Prophet because ultimately, implementing the Qur'an and the Sunnah, upon what understanding? All of the sects implementing the Qur'an and the Sunnah upon their understanding and their Imam's understanding. Whereas the Salaf, Ahlul Sunnah, the Salafis, implementing the Qur'an and the Sunnah upon the understanding of the Salaf of this Ummah, so when we say things about the names and attributes of Allah, it can be proven from the statements of the Salaf. This was their aqidah. When we talk about Iman, we can find statements from the Salaf. This was their aqidah. You can find statements of Imam al-Bukhari, how he mentions thousands of scholars who mentioned Iman increases and decreases. 
When we talk about the decree, you'll find the statements from the Salaf about the belief in the decree. Everything, you will find it from the Salaf. Whereas all these other sects, they will never find their misguidances from examples being implemented by the Salaf. And that's what distinguishes Ahlul Sunnah from Ahlul Bid'ah. And that's why Al-Imam Ahmed didn't even say that our methodology is the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the Salaf. He just went straight to the Salaf because that's where the distinction is. Everybody claims Qur'an and Sunnah, but all of these other sects, the misguided ones, cannot possibly claim they are practicing it upon the understanding of the Salaf. And that's what distinguishes Salaf here from the others. Anybody else? Allah doesn't what? Uh, Allah didn't forbid you to be uh, kind and just uh, to those who don't uh, uh, don't fight you on account of your religion. And um... there's no problem in that, in the, in those ayat or anywhere else, because the scholars have mentioned when it comes to your interaction with a non-Muslim, then there are two perspectives of interaction. One perspective is that this person is a kafir mushrik, associating partners alongside Allah. So certainly you have love or hatred for that. Hatred. Certainly a person is upon kufr and shirk and associating partners alongside Allah and a son for Allah and this and that. You have hatred for the person upon that. That's one perspective. But the second perspective the scholars mention as well is... That ultimately guidance is in your control or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who guides. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides. So the, like now we just mentioned Abu Sufyan and other examples. Khalid ibn Walid. Was he not originally from those who were with the mushrikeen fighting against the Muslims and then he became Muslim. So you have a perspective of hatred for the kufr and the kafir. But then there is a perspective that tomorrow he may be from your brothers. So you have the perspective of kindness and goodness and da'wah to that person. It is not like the khawarij, one perspective, kafir, kafir, kill and do this and do that. That is a misguidance of their understanding. So there is a perspective when it comes to al-wala, wal-bara, etc. The hatred of a non-Muslim of his kufr and shirk. But then, of course, that does not mean at all that you oppress anyone or transgress against anyone because there is the perspective of da'wah to this person and Allah is the one who guides. Perhaps tomorrow he will be from the best of the Muslims better than you. So there is no contradiction. There are two perspectives there that must be joined. Anybody else? So does somebody have to be one of those 73 sects 
Do you have to be one of the 73 to go to paradise? The hadith says all of them are in hellfire anyway, except only one. So it's not like there's an option. There's only one methodology, one correct practice, one as-siratul mustaqim that you must be upon. And if a person is upon that, then by default you are in the saved sect. And if that's the case, there is no difference between you and the one who says that he is from Ahlul Sunnah, he is from the Salaf. Really then it comes down to what? Somebody just doesn't want to say they are Salafi for example. But if you are upon that methodology absolutely, then what is the difference between you and a Salafi? The other sects, the 72 sects, when the Prophet said they are all in the hellfire except one, does that mean the other 72 sects are kuffar who stay in the hellfire forever? It doesn't. So it doesn't mean that the other sects are kuffar. Some of them specifically, there are statements of the scholars and there are discussions about some of the sects of the Rawafid and even the Khawarij, etc. But generally, that doesn't mean that the other groups are all kuffar in the hellfire forever. Doesn't mean that. Allah Alam, if it is the case that the 73 will always be there, originally, of course, there were not 73. It wasn't like as soon as the Prophet died, all of a sudden there were 73 different schools of thought. They emerged. Some of the scholars, they say all of the 73 emerged from how many sources? Four. Four. Some of the scholars say there were four main sources of misguidance that then multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and branches occurred until you ended up at 72 of them. So uh, it doesn't mean that all of them were there at once. They emerged over time. And Allah Alam, if it means they will always be that many or if there at some time may not be that many. But the point is there are definitely that many of the deviations and the different lines that the people went upon. Hmm. Uh, um, how, do I, how do I explain to a person that, the person that he said that you, don't, you, do, you, do not need, you do not need to listen to Salafi publication, you just listen straight to the ulama if you know Arabic or if you don't know Arabic, that's the translation of the ulama. You, you don't need to listen to Salafi publication, just listen straight to the ulama and scholars and the books and Quran and Sunnah, no need to Salafi publication, that's so much the people say it. You don't need to listen to Salafi publication, just listen to ulama or just listen to ulama only. How do I, how do I explain that? If a person understands Arabic, then obviously, yes, without a doubt, your source of knowledge can be primarily and would be primarily from the scholars anyway. If you understand Arabic, there's no issue with that side of it. If you understand Arabic, then obviously you're going to follow the lessons of the scholars. You're going to listen to their live lectures online. You watch their live lectures being broadcast, whatever. You're going to do that. Somebody who speaks Arabic and doesn't take from the lessons of the scholars would be strange. So in terms of the one who understands Arabic, no doubt you are going to go to the scholars and learn from them because that is the source anyway. Whoever it is 
whether it is this markaz or that markaz or Birmingham markaz or any markaz, everywhere the source is that we return back to who? Ahlul Sunnah and the scholars. That's the source that everybody returns back to as Allah commanded us to do so. Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So of course, at the head of all of the people of knowledge are the scholars. So in terms of the source, they are the source of understanding the Quran and the Sunnah in returning back to them. Everybody else, perhaps some people, they want you to completely block out and reject certain people and certain uh, speakers maybe. And that is incorrect. A person who is upon the Sunnah and he's teaching from what the scholars are teaching, and especially if you're in a situation where you don't speak Arabic, you have no choice but to learn from the students of knowledge who are learning from and taking from the scholars. So perhaps the people who make these statements, perhaps their intention might be that they want to bypass you or, or to take you away from certain people because they have problems with certain people or certain marakis or certain individuals. Maybe that is their intention. If that is their intention, you say no. Of course, we learn from the scholars. And if you speak Arabic, of course, you go directly to the scholars and you can learn from their lessons and their books and their uh, broadcasts and their lectures. But that doesn't mean you abandon your gatherings. Here now, for example, brothers now, they speak Arabic, some of the brothers. That wouldn't mean now we say to those brothers, don't bother coming to these classes. There are many benefits for these classes. Benefits of even brotherhood. That all the Muslim, the brothers of the community, the sisters, they come together. Even that in and of itself is a benefit. And it is good for the iman of a person to come and sit in a lesson and a gathering and to be with his brothers. That is a good benefit. And even if, by the blessing of Allah, a person is knowledgeable and knows everything inside and out, then alhamdulillah he comes for revision nevertheless. Comes for revision and maybe he can benefit us at the end with extra benefits. So if a person is saying these things to you to take you away from the Salafis, whoever they might be, whichever, markers here, there, everywhere, that is not correct. But as for the argument of going to the scholars, there isn't an issue with that. Of course we return to the scholars and that is the source of the knowledge. Anybody else? School of thought, I'm assuming the person is asking about fiqh. What school of thought in fiqh, I assume, do the Salafis follow? Uh, Ahlul Sunnah, we say that as Imam Malik said, Everyone can be taken from and also rejected except the one in this grave, Imam Malik was teaching in Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, except for the one in this grave, he was talking about the Prophet ﷺ. So there is no school of thought that is absolutely 100%. All of them will have some shortcoming somewhere, some error somewhere. So Ahlul Sunnah don't say that we blindly follow only one school of thought. Rather, the only one where the source is accurate is the Prophet ﷺ. All of the schools of thought, we benefit from them. Al-Shafi'i, Malik, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Abu Hanifa, rahimahumullah. We benefit from all of them and we learn from all of them. But we do not say you must only follow one school of thought. The only person you can say that about is the 
Prophet ﷺ, you must all follow him. But after that, we don't say you must all be upon the way of Abu Hanifa or the way of a Shafi'i or the way of Hanbal. Whatever they said, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, whatever they said, you have to follow that. We do not do that and that is obvious why it would be wrong. They themselves, the Imams themselves, they said, all four of them, do not follow me if you find something in the Quran and the Sunnah that opposes what I say. All of them said that, including Imam Abu Hanifa. So how can we go against them and say, forget what you said, I'm going to follow you in everything you said. They themselves have told you, don't do that if some evidence comes opposing what I say, follow the evidence. Don't blindly just follow me saying no, but the Imam said, they said that. So then the people clearly have fallen into a little bit of exaggeration with the affair. Anybody else? Yeah, but all of those books are in Arabic. There's nothing in English. I don't know if there's anything available in English that would break down all of those kinds of things. The books of the Madahib are huge. You get a book on the Hanbali Fiqh, it'll be three of these shelves big. That's one book. And then that's the same with all of them. Al-Imam Shafi'i, Kitab al-Um, for example, a whole shelf long, 10, 20 volumes. So how a person's going to read all through all of those? It's not possible. Uh, they're all in Arabic. There's nothing like that available in English. You're not going to get books that big in that detail going through the different madahib or anything but in arabic they're all there al-mughni and al-um and all these different books for the different madahib last one then anybody and regarding barakah uh, can you ask someone um, at a place that is mubarak for example hajj you going to hajj can you ask him to make dua on your behalf expecting that because he's in hajj a place of mubarak that his, somehow his dua will be accepted Generally asking someone to make dua for you is permissible, generally speaking. Generally that you ask an individual to make dua for you is permissible. A person is going to hajj and you ask them to make dua for you. It's not something the scholars, they say, you make into a belief of extra benefit like that. It's like when people always say to others, when you go to Umrah or Hajj and you go to the Prophet's grave, send my Salam as well. The scholars say, no, you don't do that. Why are you going to send your salam with this person? Uh, Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi, he said, you're sending your salam to the messenger via this person. And this person, he might not even make it. Maybe some accident happens, he doesn't make it. Or maybe he gets, then he forgets. Why are you going to use him as your courier, him to take your salam when the hadith says that the angels will take your salam to the messenger? So uh, a person doesn't necessarily go into that line of thinking that uh, you make dua for me here and you make dua for me there. But generally asking a person that you make dua for me and remember me in your duas, there's nothing wrong with that generally. Hmm. We'll leave it at that for today then. Inshallah ta'ala, resume next week after the prayer.